0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast. This is episode 35, and our guest today is Vance Crow. So Vance is basically a jack-of-all-trades. He's a fellow podcaster and, a, and an agriculture enthusiast. And he also had a really cool job title with Monsanto. He was the Director of Millennial Engagement. If you Google that, he's the only person that will pop up. It's a really cool fact. He's got a very cool background. He worked with the Peace Corps. He was a communications coordinator with NPR. He was a communications strategist with the World Bank Group. And now he's a communications consultant. He does public speaking, talking about how companies can... Kind of talk with their critics and stakeholders, as well as talking about technology. So, Vance is a really cool guy. He's going to talk to us about his work with Monsanto, how he got the job, and what exactly he did as the director of millennial engagement, and also what a lot of misconceptions were that he saw. And also, he's going to talk about his podcast, the Vance Crow podcast, where he interviews interesting people to learn more from them and kind of how to be more productive and to learn more in life. It's really cool. Be sure to check it out. We'll link it all below. Also, don't forget, we are doing a $50 Amazon gift card giveaway for the holidays. So you have until December 1st to leave a written review on iTunes. And if you do, you can get a $50 gift card, which is fantastic. We will announce the winner the week of December 1st. So go ahead, leave a review, share the podcast. It helps us out a ton. This is episode 35 with Vance Crow. Really hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Right, well, welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast, Vance Crow. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good. So I'm very excited to talk with you. You've got a podcast. You've got a lot of really cool skills. You've worked with Monsanto. So before we dive into all that, kind of tell us about your background, where you come from, what your like passions are, and kind of where you are at now.
2: Well, it's pretty surreal for me to be on a podcast, the Farm Traveler, because I did not grow up on a farm. I actually had very little to do with agriculture until I was. Um, in my 30s, um, when I went to work for Monsanto. But before that, I had been pretty much a wanderer. I had uh, gone to college and didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did a whole bunch of different jobs. I became a deckhand on an ecotourism ship. I bought a house and renovated it and sold it. Then I went and joined the US Peace Corps and ended up in Kenya. And then the list just goes on and on and on. Um, for about 10 years. And then uh, that's when I met my wife out in Washington, DC. I was working at the World Bank and she was working at Lockheed Martin. And I realized that the World Bank, this place that I had imagined was gonna be the place that I could do the most good in the world, uh, was not at all that. It was was something altogether different. And so my dreams of getting to the top of the world and trying to make big changes came crashing down. And I decided I'm gonna marry this woman And we're going to get out of D.C. and we'll help her follow her dreams. So we ended up moving to St. Louis. And a long story short, I ended up uh, interviewing for a job at Monsanto. And that dropped me into the agriculture world that I've been in for the last uh, about six years.
1: Well, cool. Yeah, it's always kind of funny to wind up. You never know where you're going to wind up. So it's really cool that you kind of had some twists and turns there to kind of deliver you at Monsanto. And you said you didn't really have an ag background
2: growing up, right? Yeah, I mean, so I grew up in small town central Illinois. And... I would get paid to go walk beans or bale hay because everybody did in the small town. But I had no connection between the things that were growing and that being food. It it was just like, if you go stand out in the sun long enough, we'll give you some money. And I liked that deal.
1: Yeah, that's not bad. That sounds like a really good job growing up. Um, All right, so when you were at Monsanto, you have like one of the coolest job titles that I've seen. It's the Director of Millennial Engagement. So what all were your job responsibilities when you had that in, I mean, this was your first position at Monsanto. So what was it like kind of learning on the go and also kind of figuring out ways that Monsanto can communicate with millennials?
2: Well, maybe the best way to describe what that job was is to describe how I interviewed for it. When I uh, saw the opportunity to go become the director of millennial engagement for Monsanto, I thought it was the funniest job description I had ever heard of. Like, Monsanto, this evil empire, is gonna go try and reach out to millennials. And a friend of mine had sent me the job posting, and we thought it was so funny that I was kinda like, well, why not apply for it? It's in town here. And if you get an interview, you get to go see inside of this place that for all intents and purposes was North Korea to me. And so I uh, applied and they invited me in for an interview. And I remember driving up to the campus and being horribly disappointed because I had imagined that I was going to come up on a building that was 80 stories tall and had big dark storm clouds around it. And everybody would be wearing Matrix style sunglasses and black suits. But that wasn't the case at all. In fact, it was like a two-story college campus with fountains and statues and um, people walking around in, in sweaters. And so when I interviewed for the job, the whole time I was in this kind of surreal experience where if you've ever interviewed for a job you don't want, it's about as much fun as you can have because you you get to say whatever you want. And so they would ask me a question and I would answer that question. Maybe it would be like, how do you like to be managed? You know, what what's your um, style for working in, in groups? And I would answer that question. And then I would be like, why are you poisoning this, the food system with GMOs? What's going on with you guys dumping all these fertilizers in the Gulf of Mexico? Because I really didn't understand any of the the ways that agriculture worked or any of the the uh, realities on the ground. And so I actually ended up being the perfect person to uh, figure out what questions should Monsanto be answering and how can they uh, do a better job of engaging with people. So they ended up ultimately offering me this job because I had been so candid during the interview. And I really just tried to spend that time trying to figure out, is the company the, the the evil place that everybody thinks that it is. And if it is, then I am going to learn all about it and I'm going to go write the greatest tell-all book of all time. And if they're not, and you discover something else, you discover, well, maybe they aren't as evil as everybody thinks they are and they're contributing to making the world a maybe, maybe a better place. Maybe we're, having, we're growing food more bountifully than we ever have before in the history of time and nobody knows it. And so one of those two things was going to be closer to reality, and, uh, and so that was my goal. I went into the company and tried to figure out who are they, what are they doing, and then when I discovered that I thought they were doing a net positive for the world, then the question becomes, how could you have reached, how could I have reached somebody like me to change their opinion on how the food system works in, in, uh, in the world today?
1: That's really cool. So it sounds like you were kind of answering the right questions at the right time that, they, that, they, that the people at Monsanto knew that millennials were also going to ask. So that's very interesting. Uh, so I was listening to your podcast and you're interviewing who you said was your mentor, uh, a former Monsanto scientist, Fred Perlack. And you said that whenever you were at Monsanto, you were given the duty to kind of shadow different experts at Monsanto. So what are some big things that you learned then when you were interviewing or when you were kind of shadowing all these different people in various different aspects of the agriculture industry at Monsanto. What were some big takeaways that you
2: had? That's a great question. And so when I, the way that they decided to train me was to give me a list of 50 people from throughout the company to go sit down and talk with. So that could be geneticists and chemists and breeders and uh, attorneys and farmers. And every single person I sat down with had worked for 10, 15, 20 years. So they had a deep, deep expertise and knowledge about the way agriculture works. And what I was so surprised by and impressed with was, there are so many things that go into modern row crop farming that people would have no idea about. It is so sophisticated and so complicated that really it's a question of where to begin because every single aspect of farming today has people that they only specialize in that one single part of it like there are people that are just specialized in how far should we push the seed into the ground how many seeds should we put you know in the, in a single row what's the singulation And what's the population we should have while growing? And then that's not even to mention all of the people that are engaged in learning about chemistry and discovering new chemicals and discovering ways to use the chemicals that we already have in new and novel ways. So it's really difficult for me to nail down, you know, what are the most interesting things? I think the thing that I really didn't understand was just how incredibly sophisticated the whole system is.
1: Yeah, I can, I can imagine that it was kind of eye opening to kind of see how, how much goes into production farming. And yeah, people outside of the industry has no idea, or have no idea what's it like a lot goes into row crops or researching GMOs. And speaking of that, what were some things that you learned about GMOs? Because like you said, you were curious about whenever you were interviewing, Oh, what are GMOs? What are you guys doing? doing to them. So what are some key things that you learned about GMOs when you were there?
2: I think the probably the most profound is the level of precision that goes into genetic engineering. You know when we first started doing uh, genetically engineered crops, the way that they would do it is that they would take a little splice of DNA that they wanted to get in there, they would um, put it into on a on the on the tip of a golden bullet, believe it or not and and in a gun, and they would shoot it into a medium, hoping that just the right fleck of DNA would go into the right spot and then they would um, clone that and then plant it in the ground. And then they would have to plant tens uh, tens of thousands of the exact same one looking for which of the plants had the DNA insert into the, the genetic code in exactly the right spot. And if it didn't go in exactly the right spot, it both wouldn't work right and you couldn't use it because you needed it in that, in that spot because you needed it to be where you could find it. And now, if you fast forward about 25, 30 years from when they were doing that with CRISPR technology, we can basically place a DNA, a, a gene, wherever we want in the genome. And once we've done it, once you've made a new genetically engineered crop, that is only the beginning of the research. Because once you've figured out, hey, we want to put in Um, a GMO that will allow the plant to produce a protein that makes it so a very specific type of insect can't eat it, a thrip for example. Once you have figured out that you can do it and you can prove efficacy, now you begin a 13-year process that costs $10 million a year to go through all of the regulatory uh, hurdles to be able to bring that to market. So all of the R&D costs are are before that point and then you've got about 130 million dollars for one genetically engineered crop um, before you can bring it to market and i think that that staggering level of precision and that enormous regulatory cost really kind of surprised me
1: when was it that they used the golden bullet to shoot the genes into the into the dna like when was that
2: So that must have been in the 80s. If you were talking to Dr. Perlack, he could probably be more specific on on how they were doing transformations back then. And I know that my description probably has many holes in it. As I talk to scientists, people like Fred Perlack or another uh, guy that I've had on my podcast, Doug Sammons, I hear what they're saying and I try and distill it into a simple way. But invariably, my simplicity leaves out really important nuances that if a scientist is listening they're sitting there cringing but if a regular person is listening they're like oh okay i I can understand that and so i always have that balance but my details are never uh that fine grain
1: (laughs) that that is such a tricky balance because on here we're we're trying to like communicate to consumers what goes in their food well farmers farmers or anybody involved in agriculture will say some things like very simply but consumers are usually like, wait, 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 what does, what does that mean? So I totally understand that kind of fine line you've got to walk with, supplying enough detail, but also not going super in-depth to where somebody kind of outside of the, of the industry won't understand it that well. So I totally get you there. Um, so so as the director of millennial engagement, were there any kind of common threads that quote-unquote millennials would kind of have towards... Or, would have? Would they have any thoughts geared towards Monsanto in a certain way? Like, were there, were they, were they just all kind of big anti-corporation people, or what were some big misconceptions that they had? Uh,
2: I think that the the interesting thing that happened, and I didn't realize it for probably the first six months, as I was going out and I would go to a conference or I'd go to some place where uh, young people were gathering, could be a college campus that I'd been invited to speak at. What I realized was, when I would start talking with somebody, they wouldn't necessarily know I was from Monsanto. So we would start talking, and we would be having a good conversation, and you know what happens when you're at like a conference, and you realize, hey, I don't remember what this person said their name was, so they would look down at my name badge, and as soon as they would look down, they would see Monsanto, and then they'd look right back up at my face, and then they'd do something funny. They'd turn and look over one shoulder, and then they'd turn and look over the other shoulder. And then they'd get kind of quiet and they'd say, I don't have a problem with Monsanto, but I have a friend that really dislikes you guys. And I had this experience so many times that I began to realize that most of the people that we hear hate Monsanto, think they're so terrible. They they're actually more of an apparition. It's more of the voices that you hear from the intransigent minority. And those get carried over by other people being like, hey, they think you're bad, so I guess we kind of think you're bad. And the, the fervor with which just regular people have for their feelings about Monsanto was nowhere near as hot as I thought it was going to be. Certainly, I got into places where there were people that had strong opinions, and some of them were well-informed and some of them not so much. But I would say a vast majority, probably 95% of my experience, was somebody saying that they didn't have a problem, but they had a friend that didn't like us.
1: Wow. That's interesting that they would kind of do a double take like, Oh wait, you're from Monsanto. And, um, that's interesting though. They kind of take misinformation that they get from their Pete their from their friends. And, Oh, well I'm going to form my own opinion based on what they say, but not really do any research backed information. And so that, that's very interesting. Um,
2: I mean, I think we kind of all do that. I think that, uh, There's a guy out in the world named Yosha Bach, and he goes by Plins on Twitter. And he talks about how human beings actually know very, very little. And what we do is we rely on our tribe, the group of people, to tell us, not what is the correct answer, but what is the normative answer? What is the answer that as long as you agree with this, you get to get along with the tribe? And he makes the case that for most of human history, Getting along with the tribe is way more important than having the right answer. Because if the tribe rejects you, you're out and you need the group to to get along. And that's a part of the way that our brain still functions today. We, We look for the normative answer as opposed to the correct answer most of the time.
1: That's interesting. I've heard about that before, kind of like the herd mentality, where you want to blend in, you want to kind of associate with your fellow humans, and you don't really want to stand out. So you want to latch on to whatever kind of viewpoints they have. So that's very, very cool. Uh, were you present at Monsanto whenever they merged with Bayer? Were you there when kind of all that went down?
2: Yeah, I was. And uh, I when all the way from the announcement that they were going to do it, the 18 months that it took, and then the, I was there for about, I don't know, six or eight months between uh, when it actually happened and and then working for Bayer.
1: Okay, and their research is still going on. It's just It's just kind of under the umbrella of Bayer now, right?
2: Yeah. So the, the largest difference is probably that the headquarters is now in Germany. And, you know, I think there's a strong emphasis around wanting to make sure the employees feel like, Hey, you're still going to have local control Monsanto. We still have a lot of leadership positions here, but at its core, the company's um, center of mass is in Germany. Now it's no longer in St. Louis, Missouri.
1: Okay. Okay. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about your podcast. So it's the Vance Crow podcast. What kind of started you to make a podcast? How did you learn to do it? So what? What was the kind of the genesis of your podcast?
2: Man, that's a that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I uh, I have a background in radio, so I spent a little bit of time at in community public radio in Northern California. I was living in a place called Mendocino. And uh, they had a public radio station and I started out as a membership coordinator and I worked my way up to actually being on the radio for a few hours a week. And that's when I learned how sound works and how to engineer things and, um, you know, more or less how to do interviews. And then uh, I, I went on to grad school and, and my life changed. And when I came to work at Monsanto, I realized hey, you don't have to use the old media system that has been there. You don't actually have to run your ideas through mainstream gatekeepers. You have the ability to publish interesting information, content that you want without somebody mediating between you and and the listeners. And I had a really strong pull to trying to do that. But when you work for a corporation, the type of free-flowing conversation that you and I are having right here can be kind of scary for them, because as a corporation, they can be held liable for any time somebody makes a mistake or says something that people don't agree with, and you make, you open yourself up to either lawsuits or to have these conversations that are recorded then be put into a lawsuit. So Monsanto was never going to do a podcast, or if they did, it was going to be so watered down that it was not going to be something valuable. So I spent a lot of my time trying to connect the cool monsanto scientists the people like doug sammons and fred perlack that i met with other people that were doing podcasts and the whole time i was sitting there thinking man i would really love to do this too i i see the value in having your own thing week in and week out where you talk to people and have the kind of conversations that you think are important and you don't let them be mediated by somebody else so when i made the decision that i was going to leave monsanto a big part of that decision was now I'm going to now I'm going to try and put my money where my mouth is and and put forward a podcast that I think will make a difference. And it's all on me and and I'll put in the the sweat equity that I need to, to make my podcast good.
1: Well, there you go. Where all did you go for your information on like, oh, how to record, how to interviewing techniques, because when I did it, I mean, there are so many articles and videos and also podcasts out there. But I mean, what you need to do for your specific podcast setup is going to be very, very specific. And so it's all about kind of getting the right information and taking it all with a grain of salt and figuring out what, what works best for you. So what were you doing at kind of those early stages to kind of figure it out how you could all do it?
2: Oh, man, you are exactly right. I mean, <laughs> there is no, no one can say, I don't know how or I don't have somebody to show me how to do these things because it's all out there. And in fact... The biggest problem is probably information overload uh, more than it is not, not having access. The, the audio part was all pretty straightforward to me. In fact, when I, before, even before I came to Monsanto, I had a small podcast where I had, I had my Yeti microphone and I, I was recording into Audacity and I was learning the beginnings of it. But when I decided to do this, I decided that I was going to um, have a video component to put it up on YouTube. And that was where the huge learning curve was. When you start adding in, so it's one thing to learn how to do audio, how to cut down your echo, how to master your sound so that that way you can get equalization and compression. But when you add in video, now you've got all different other kinds of features. And I would say that I am a white belt at best. I am, I am just showing up and uh, getting beaten up every week but just trying to get better and better. And, and, I've, and, I, and I've even noticed on your podcast is I've listened, I went in reverse order and then I uh, stopped and started going the other direction because I was like, you know, when you listen to somebody's podcast and they've only been doing it for a few months or even a few years, it, the, every time they do a podcast, they get better. So every time you figure out how to knock down a little bit more echo or how to make things sound a little bit better, and uh, and you hope that the people that started with you um, uh, appreciate it, or at least they say, oh, this is a more comfortable podcast to listen to um, each week because you get a little better. You make the sound a little bit more comfortable for people.
1: Yeah, it's so funny. You You hope that people go back and kind of listen to your previous episodes, but... You're also kind of thinking, uh, it, it, there's sections in there that I didn't edit out, edit out correctly. The audio quality is not the best. And so you kind of get a little self-conscious of the older episodes. And we're definitely the same way. I mean, the intro music to the podcast, for some reason, I'd never caught it for about 10 episodes in the beginning. It was a little distorted and a little bit wrong. And so I finally went back and edited them all and they all sounded normal. So I totally agree. Like, as you go, <laughs> as you progress, you're getting better and better and, and you're, you said you're doing the YouTube videos, so you're easily doing the, the job of like four or five people. I mean, you're producing it, you're getting the guests, you're doing all the audio setup, all the filming, so it's, it's I can imagine your workload is a little bit hectic with all of that production setup going on.
2: You know, it, it is, um, and, uh, and at first, when I was first starting my company, so I do some consulting and I go out and give a lot of talks, so just this morning I was giving a talk, I'm gonna get on a plane and fly to Arizona and go give a talk tomorrow, At first, I didn't have that much going on. But now I have a lot going on and I've really made the bar pretty high. So I've had to start saying like, okay, what equipment can I purchase that will make it so the time to get this done isn't quite as high? But the problem, and I'm sure you know this, anytime you add in something new, it may make your life easier a few weeks or a few months down the road, but you have to learn how to do it. And uh, I think the learning curve is really, really, really expensive because it's time. And that time is something that, um, you know, if if you're working on other things like you are, you don't have that much of it. And so you've got to make the most of it whenever you can. Yeah,
1: you've just got to set aside time to kind of figure it out. And I've learned, I, whenever we started out, I wanted to have the perfect audio, the perfect production, but that's, I mean, that's just not going to happen. And so your first episode- You're pretty good, not- man.
2: You're, you're like, I, I, I was very impressed. When you first uh, reached out to me, I was like, all right, let's, get, let's go check this out. And uh, I was like, hey, this guy, this guy cares about how he sounds, which is what makes the difference to me. When you get on and somebody's just like, hey, I'm phoning in a podcast, I'm, I'm just going to record two people. Um, you, if it, because if you don't pay attention to it, you amortize the cost of having bad at audio ac- across all of the people that listen to your episode. And so I really appreciated how good your sound is.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And whenever I was researching it, I was trying to figure out, oh man, well, what's the best audio? What do consumers like whenever they're listening to podcasts? I was like, wait a minute. I listen to podcasts. What audio do I like? I don't like it when they're staticky, when they sound weird. I want something that's going to sound normal and sound really good. And then, so that's kind of what I went from there. But that means a lot. Thank you very much because I'm always trying to figure out the best way to make it sound professional. I mean, it's not going to sound like, you know, we've got like the sure $500 microphone or something. I've just got like the little blue Yeti microphone. I started out with a little tiny Rode microphone for a camera. So it's all about kind of tweaking it a little bit, the sound specifically, just the way you want it. So it's all a work in progress, man.
2: So tell- you know, one of the things that that I think is really important for listeners to know is this is a collaborative art. Mm, and yeah. if you have listeners, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I am always so grateful when somebody calls and says or somebody writes me a a lot of times I get Twitter DMs and they say, Hey, you know, the the music was too loud at the end, you know, you should turn that down. Anybody that's listening should know that a person that's creating something they want, they crave that feedback and you don't get it from the people that are the closest to you. The people that are closest to you are like, oh yeah, I listened. It was nice. But it's the people that are listening all the time that I really, really want to hear from because Mm -hmm. they're the ones that can help me get better.
1: Yeah. I mean, that constructive criticism can help your production go up better. They might not like a song. And so, I mean, the intro song or the intro of your episode, if you change it because of their... Advice. I mean, that could just change the trajectory of your podcast. So yeah, that's that's a really good idea. I've reached out a couple of times, gotten some really good feedback. And whenever we get reviews, we always try to push reviews, which I'm sure you do too. It's so cool to kind of get like a positive review. It's like, man, I really like listening to your podcast. Thanks for all the good interviews. It's got a lot of really good content. That's always really cool. And so it makes like the hours and hours that you would spend editing an episode kind of worth it. So it's really cool to kind of see the the fruits of your labor when your listeners are happy. Amen. Uh, So tell us about some of your guests. You've had um, one of our guests, you've had Dr. Kevin Falta, you've had Rob Sharkey, the shark farmer, you've had a bunch of people on your podcast and it's not just agriculture based. So tell us about your podcast, what the goal of it is and some of your guests that you've had in the past.
2: Yeah. So my podcast is about expertise and I try and find people that have a deep knowledge in a subject and I try and give them a platform where we can, we can really open it up. And I have found that oftentimes you need a long uh, amount of time to let a person who has such deep knowledge of a subject feel comfortable, feel like, hey, um, this is a conversation where he's gonna, he's gonna ask me a question and he's gonna stick around for the answer. And the other thing that I try and do, I live in a place that is really pretty easy for people to get to. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. And so my interviews are all live, one-on-one. It's a, it's a person sitting across from me on the table in my studio in, in my house. And there's, there's something that happens um, when two people are in the same room together. And it's, it's enabled me to ask people those kinds of questions that you you normally only get to do if you have three hours to get a coffee with them or a couple of hours to get a beer with somebody. And I, I, um, I'm trying as best I can is to learn what are the habits that you developed to make it possible for you to get such a deep level of knowledge? Where were the times when you thought you had everything figured out and really you realized, actually, no, I, I was failing there. that Things were really messed up and I didn't know what I was doing. And that that's what I'm trying to pull out because that's the type of conversation that I love having. And I think other people uh don't get to have that very often. And so it's it's an enjoyable experience for for me, the guest, and hopefully the listener.
1: Yeah, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and they're really cool. Always a lot of really good advice and just great guests on there. How do you go about finding these guests? I mean, do you just use email? Do you use social media? How do you kind of contact them first?
2: So far. Most of the guests have been people that are already in my network or their one network hop away. So, my wife finds a lot of interesting people. She is an aerospace engineer turned elite physical therapist. And so, she's met a lot of people along the way. She introduced me to a woman named Connie Dickman, who was the head of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the number one nutrition and dietetics expert in the world for a time. And I was able to meet with her. I I got to bring in my Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach who was one of the Pan-American Brazilian jiu-jitsu champions. And he just happens to be a guy that I roll with. I go to his gym and I invited him to be on the podcast. And I'm sure you've come to realize like people like being asked to have a long conversation and they are willing to give up their time to do that because somebody's expressing, hey, I'm interested in talking with you and I'm so interested in talking with you that I want to record it and, and share it with the world. I mean, that's flattering. It was flattering to me when, when you wrote me, this doesn't happen every day. And, uh, and so it, it's a great, it's a great experience for everybody involved. It feels like.
1: That's very true. And when I reached out to you, I think, I, I think you emailed back within a couple of hours and I was like, all right, that's a really quick response. This is fantastic. This is going to work, work out. So I was, I was very glad to hear back from you. And and yeah, anytime I reach out to a company, and usually they're like, oh, it's free marketing. This is perfect. And they're very upfront. They're very open about their business and being on and kind of kind of talking about what they do. So it's a win-win for everybody. And kind of like how you talked about, whenever we first started, our first episodes were people that we knew. And so I would email them or send them a message on Facebook or Instagram. And usually most of the people that I asked at the beginning were like, sure, absolutely. Let's do it. So kind of like how you said they were in my network or a network just above it, and then we kind of built on those relationships and kind of had them on the podcast, which was really cool. Uh,
2: So do you find that there is some level of um, not knowing somebody that's helpful on the podcast? Uh, Does that question make sense?
1: Kinda, yeah, ask me again real quick.
2: So, So what I've found is it's good for me to know a person but not be really close with them. I, I've, there's two interviews I've tried to do one with uh, a guy named Rob Long. He goes by Plantimals on Twitter. He's like my best friend. I spent all kinds of time with him. We go to interview and it doesn't seem authentic because I'm asking him questions. I already know the answer to because if I had that question, I would ask him. And the same is true with uh, a buddy of mine named Travis Liebig. He's the president of a, of a local bank here. Um, and um, And we tried to do an interview and it just doesn't feel right because I know him so well. It's hard to make that conversation sound authentic.
1: Yeah, I I totally feel or I totally understand what you're saying. I had one of my good friends on on Ben Hall. And it's funny because he's a director in Hollywood, so not related to agriculture at all. But he was like my first big practice interview. And so, yeah, it, it seemed a little genuine, but I knew all the answers to all the questions and so it is kind of a balance there to kind of feel like a genuine conversation is going on, but without being too interviewee, but also kind of asking the right questions. And I don't know about you, and you probably feel the same way. I'm always trying to experiment with interviewing techniques because I want to ask a certain amount of questions that I'm kind of curious about and I think consumers are. But also, I don't want to kind of dictate how the conversation goes. Like I want it to be natural kind of flow. And maybe they're going to bring up something that I haven't even thought of. So it, it's kind of like a balancing act to kind of balance what you want to ask, but also how the conversation is going to go. So have
2: you kind of experienced that a little bit? Oh, yeah. And and that you, you're you talking about a, a really, um, it, it's a really difficult balance. It's kind of the difference between order and chaos. Order being, these are the questions I know about, I, I'm, I'm interested in, I know that other people might find this interesting. And chaos being, I don't know what's out there. I'm going to ask this question and they may not want that question. They may not know how to answer it. And so you have to have some sort of balance because if you ask questions that are too out of left field, they won't know how to put together an answer that that gives the audience something they want to listen to. But then on the other side, if you only ask the ordered stuff, you won't, you won't discover something new. And I think, I think most of the time people, when they're listening to podcasts, they are trusting the host to ask the question that either they would want to ask or they would wish that they had wanted to ask. And that's a that's a challenge. I think you do a great job of it in the in the episodes I've listened to of trying to find those questions that another person might not even normally think to ask because, you know, presumably every audience member could try and contact the guests and talk with them themselves. So the the guest the host is trying to Uh, automate that in some way or scale that in some way. And and it requires work because if you don't do it, then people either suffer through a bad interview or they don't listen at all.
1: Yeah, and you don't want them to suffer because, I mean, if if they suffer for one episode, the likelihood of them not coming back is very, very high. And I mean, with podcasts, it's all about downloads, all about listens. So if one person can get get hooked on it, hopefully they'll share it. So yeah, all really, really good points. Um, What are some, do you have any future goals for the podcast? I mean, do you want to do more YouTube videos for them? Or what are your goals for the next year or say for your podcast?
2: Well, I I have tried very hard to avoid uh, having a number that I'm trying to hit um, because I, I don't want to get to the point where I'm doing things just to drive numbers. And so a lot of what my goals are, the things that I write down in my journal and I come back to are about technical things that I want to learn. So I have just started to learn on the video how to do color grading. And uh, that is a really difficult skill. That, that's like saying, okay, you've got the image. But now, how much should you make the shadows become darker or the parts that are light, how can you open those up and make them even lighter? And then once you go, not just in exposure, you go to saturation, how deep and rich, how warm or how cold are the colors? And then you get into the actual colors. What should red look like in this photo? What should yellow look like? And when you do it right, it is beautiful. Um, but when you do it wrong, it looks really plasticky and, and like you've put terrible Instagram filters on it. And so my goal has been around, if I learn how to do that well, and I continue to have conversations that I think are as interesting as I can have, whatever is going to come out of this podcast is going to come. And, and, it, and it already has, right? You and I have gotten to meet each other. We, we would never have had this. They'd be, the podcast became a gravity well and it and it is it brings people to me and it brings me to other people and that's really what i was searching for when when i was doing this it's it's a, you know it's it's a way to market and reach out to people that might want me to come give speeches or come do some communications consulting but at its core this is almost like art or some some sort of calling that that i that i feel to do so Um, maybe I should have more number goals. I just, I just don't right now.
1: Yeah. It sounds like it's more of a passion project, which is good. I mean, it's always kind of pushing you to make it better and to make the content more kind of impactful for the listeners. So it sounds like it's more of a passion project for you, which is really good.
2: Yeah. And I think that, uh, it's, it's one of those things where I could easily become addicted to the numbers. And in fact, when I first started, I would go to my downloads thing and look at them and look at them and look at them and look at them. And now I'm, I'm probably because I've gotten a lot busier now I want to know, is it trending up or is it trending down? And from there I can say, if it's trending up, it means somebody has decided to carry some water for me. They've, they've said, Hey, I like this and I'm going to share it with somebody else that I know. But that's all that matters to me because if you're doing something good, like, like for you, you know, I heard your podcast uh, with, the, with the Johnny Selected Seeds guy. I loved that. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, this is something I want to talk about. This is something I want to share. And I find that that's what good listeners do. They, they hear something, they like it, and they want other people to have it. And that's really the biggest mark of, of success for me is, did I do something that prompted somebody else to say, I'm going to pick up this water and I'm going to carry it a little while for him by sharing it with other people?
1: That's a really good analogy. I've never heard of that before, kind of carrying the water. I like that. I mean, yeah, it's all about kind of finding a, a subject that somebody's going to be interested in and people that you might not know of, you can definitely learn a thing or two from them. So that's really neat.
2: What so, do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned that you didn't expect to learn while doing this podcast?
1: Oh, man. I, you know, I've learned that, I mean, I've been in agriculture my whole life. I, my grandpa had a fish farm. I was in um, the National FFA organization growing up. And I've always known that people in agriculture are smart. They're very, they have a very diverse set of skills. But now I'm learning just how, um, just how resilient they are and kind of how they'll push through all the negative information that's out there, all the, the rainy seasons, the dry spells, just all the crap that they have to put up with to do basically whatever they can to put food on our table. And so just to kind of hear their stories and all the stuff that they've been through has been really cool and kind of helped me realize, yeah, this is a really good podcast it's really good to kind of bring these stories to light so i think that's one of the biggest things that i've learned that's been very
2: impactful that's cool man
1: yeah yeah well thank you um so tell me a little bit about your keynote speaking like where all you have you spoke at what are some topics that you spoke at what's that been like being a keynote speaker
2: so if there was one thing that i truly care about that i really love It is being able to take a collection of ideas, things that I've read about, things that I've studied, conversations that I've had, and put it into a format that allows people to wake up in some way. And um, when I was looking at my career at at Monsanto, actually just before Bear took over, Monsanto said, we love what you have done here at the company. We, We are so excited about how successful you were, we want to know what do you want to do next and i didn't know because really the thing that i fell in love with was the the regular person has no idea how exceptional our food system is and instead they've become afraid and even angry about where their food comes from and no one knows how to stop that and that may actually end up being the most important question in the history of western civilization because if you can't stop people from being afraid of their food, there's no telling what people will do when they're afraid, and really major changes can happen um, that aren't for the best and and won't lead us towards a good path. And so I really loved the job that I had as the director of millennial engagement, but Monsanto was saying you're in a job that doesn't have upward mobility, and we want to give you that option. So they they put me in contact and and uh, actually it got me an executive coach. And I had always thought that those were kinda corny or you know, some, some kind of, uh, I, I, you know, something that you see on TV. But the woman that I had, her name was Peggy Guest, was exceptional. She was such a good listener. She understood so well what I was talking about. And she came to see me give a speech, because a lot of my work as the Director of Millennial Engagement was going and giving speeches. And we came back and, and I said, hey, you know, what did you think of that speech? And she said, well, it's very clear what you care about doing. And I was like, well, what's that? And she goes, well, what are you doing when you're on the stage? And I said, well, I don't really have a great analogy for it, but it's like surfing for me. It's like getting up on a wave. It's riding the edge of chaos between order and, and chaos, the known and the unknown. I don't know what's going to happen and I'm, and I'm excited and electrified. And she goes, yeah, that's what it feels like. But what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm giving news and ideas and trying to share it with people. And she was like, I don't think that's it. I think that what you're trying to do is to wake people up to their full potential. You're trying to wake them up in the place that they're at to try and do something different. And when she said that, it was absolutely clear to me that she was dead on. I don't want everyone to drop what they're doing and do exactly what I'm doing. I want them, like today, I was giving a talk to um, uh, the farm credit bankers that are focused on young, beginning, and small farmers. And my whole goal there was to help them help lend money to these new, young, beginning farmers. And if they do it better than after hearing my talk than they would have before they did my talk, well, you've literally changed the world. If, if they know how to listen to their customer better, if they know how to hear a story that somebody's telling them and understand the inner workings of that, then they'll treat that person better. They'll, they'll try and get them assistance in a way that they maybe wouldn't have done before. And that is adding good into the world. And so the the experience of giving talks is something that is my way of using the skills that I have to make the biggest difference in the world by helping other people be awake and alert to their full potential and, and hoping that they manifest those changes in the world.
1: Well, shoot, there you go. I mean, that's a pretty good deep answer. I like that. I mean, it's all about kind of engaging them. That's really, really cool. I was I was fortunate enough. I was a, an FFA state officer back after high school and. Oh,
2: this makes so much sense now. <laughs> this, this is because that is a program that helps people think on their feet. And, and uh, this makes so much sense. Hey, now.
1: there you go. Yeah. So my state officer year at convention, all the state officers give retiring addresses. And so I gave one in front of like three or 4,000 people. And that was like the coolest moment ever. Just to kind of, I was kind of, it, it wasn't really agriculture based. Those retiring addresses are more kind of motivational. And so it was all about kind of telling people, oh, you get one shot at life, kind of do the best you can, Um, don't make excuses. And so it was really cool just just to kind of be in front of 3,000 people, just to kind of leave your heart on the stage. And so it's really neat to kind of hear that you're doing the same thing. And so it's such a cool kind of community with keynote speakers and just professional speakers in general, because it's it's a lot of passion, it's a lot of planning, it's a lot of memorizing scripts and all that. So it's a very cool world.
2: Yeah, it. I had no idea a few years ago that this would be anything that I was doing. But I, when I was doing it on behalf of Monsanto, I got so many invitations to come to different places that I I started to figure out like, hey, i I must be doing something right, and this must fit something that I I care about. And it it wasn't until I was r- really had done it for about five years, spoken to about a hundred thousand people, that I was like, maybe I should do this as an actual career. And, uh, I'm so glad I have my, my, uh, I I was just, I was texting a buddy of mine, um, today as I was walking in to give my speech, I was like, I'm literally living my dream right now. I'm, I'm getting paid to go give a speech of something I care about. And the audience, if I do it well, is going to be glad that I was there and, and happy to have paid me to be there. And it did, it went great. This is, You know when people say go after your dreams that's it's a real thing you really should do it because you get to wake up in um in the morning and go do something that you care really deeply about
1: oh yeah i mean and if you're living your dream like my grandpa says and probably everybody's grandpa says this i mean if you're living your dream you never work a day in your life so it's definitely worth kind of the blood sweat and tears it takes to kind of get to living your dream like like you are being keynote speaker being having a podcast and kind of talking about inter- you're talking with interesting people, and so that's very very cool, man.
2: Are you cool. living your dream right now?
1: You know, honestly, the more I'm learning, I really really enjoy this podcast stuff. And so I taught high school for two years, kind of agro science, and I liked it, but I didn't really like kind of the bureaucracy that kind of came with the school system. And so I got <laughs> out. I'm doing software <laughs> development, but I wow. love yeah, I love podcasting. I love just kind of talking and learning with people, but most of all, kind of helping them get their message out there. I mean, helping them show the world what they're doing and like helping these farmers kind of get their message and get their products out there. So I'd say this is slowly becoming a little dream, which is really neat. I'm, I'm trying to kind of build it, get more content out there. So we'll see where it goes.
2: Well, that's great, man. I mean, and, and to find that you love it and who knows where it will take you. You know, you're building your own gravity well and things will fall into your gravity well. They'll be attracted to you. So that's good.
1: But true, exactly. Yeah, I like that. It's a good one. Um, so Vance, this has been really cool. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, if they want to follow your podcast, if they want to see what you're doing, where can they go to follow you?
2: Probably the easiest way to get a hold of me or to find me is um either on Twitter at Vance Crow, and that's V-A-N-C-E, and then crow is C-R-O-W-E. Um, otherwise, I have a website, Vancecrow.com. And the podcast is really simple and you can kind of see a theme here going, it's just the Vance Crow podcast. And I did that because my name is so weird that I figured if I came up with some sort of like cheeky name, it wouldn't be as valuable as, oh, hey, everybody just knows it's Vance. So I'm easy to find and, and I, I, th- I think pretty easy to contact.
1: Very easy to contact. I happen to found you or find you on Twitter, I think, and I just typed in Vance Curl on Google. Went to your website, found your podcast. So very easy to find. Very accessible, which is very handy. Well, Vance, thanks for being on, man. This was a really cool conversation. We wish you the best of luck with the podcast. We'll we'll send our listeners there and we'll be listening and hear all the good things, and all the really cool people you interview.
2: Oh, and keep going, Trevor. I'm I'm a fan. I'm going to keep listening. And, uh, and thank you so much for inviting me on. I, I have a big smile on my face. This has been <laughs> a great way to wrap out the day. Well, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for
1: being on and thanks for listening all the kind words. I really appreciate it. We'll, we'll try to have you on soon in a year or so and kind of touch base and see where your podcast is and we'll tell you where ours is and kind of go from there, man. Well, best of luck. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. This was our episode with Vance Crow. Check him out at vancecrow.com and also the Vance Crow podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast at. Again, don't forget our have a giveaway, uh, $50 to Amazon. You know you need it for the holidays. You know you're going to enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Continue to share and spread the word about agriculture. We'll see you next time.